my new year's resolution is to stop having to be 100% perfect all the time. The beautiful thing is the man I love, Gerard, he's always telling me, hey, you have to value a situation and decide if it's really worth an A effort or just a C plus effort. You don't have to do everything perfect. That's what probably helped you get into this adrenal crisis in the first place. It's just having to overachieve at every pass, every day, every minute. And so I, I thought about that when I was editing this week's podcast and um, I've got some facts and figures mixed up. Part of the brain injury that I sustained with uh, in 2020 with this adrenal crisis. I'm just going to lump it all together and call it that. There was a lot of really bad things that happened in addition to a world pandemic. And so, and I was left to my own devices to handle them because my family was dutifully sheltering in place. And so of course I didn't have the support system that I needed to get through things with a clear mind. And so um, it was a good time to learn how to go introspective about things. And so Anyway, one of the things I learned while I was laying around mostly dead, like Princess Bride style, mostly dead for over a year, was getting my uh, the sequencing right in my brain. I know that anybody who's listening in the food service industry understands the value of sequencing. Like when you make a meal, for example, you've got, let's just go with something classic that's easy to explain. You've got a steak, you've got a salad. You've got um, a twice baked potato, and you've got some <clears throat> roasted vegetables, and that's going to be your meal. Well, if you don't know how to sequence, you might put the steak on first, or you might dress the salad first. And if you're in food service, you know that that's wrong. The minute you dress the salad, it's going to start to wilt. So it's important to know the sequencing on things. Well, I've, I noticed over the time I was sitting around, that that part of my brain was asleep or damaged or something. And so while I was listening to this, the first two parts of this podcast, I realized that I'm starting to heal that part of my brain because I realized I got two years mixed together in my climate rights story. So I want to clarify that because it's driving me nuts. This is one of those moments when I really wanted to be a C plus person, but I can't. I want the details right. (laughs) So the year we had the mud river in the middle of the night for for all of us to deal with food service and people who had been riding bikes laying in a tent, um, that was in October. And the people in charge of the event itself were so smart that they immediately looked for a community building at the next location, which was going to be in Casper. It's a tiny little town in Mendocino County. If you ever watched this old show called Murder, She Wrote, it was filmed there. The Birds was also filmed there. I think that was in the 60s. I don't remember. But anyway, so they got ahead of time and they found this community hall that we could quickly change gears and work out of. So, so grateful for that. (laughs) So grateful. And so we get down there and they have to let us in of course and we're going to quickly change gears the distance between the two locations was about two hours so here's how it goes we start at 4 30 in the morning making breakfast and um, cook it all up i think i explained a little bit a while ago how that looks so there's a lot of variety 
and then there's also a vegan special needs table separate from that so it got a crew of some i kept having to tweak my crew size sometimes i'd have four people sometimes i'd have eight it just depended on as every year would go by and it would evolve i would get better and better and better at this custom situation normally we're wearing nice clothes and doing wedding food and we got a pretty much a routine going but it was different with the climate right because we once again we're in primitive campgrounds and and schlepping between locations and we're we're out on the rugged coastline so there's really not a lot of amenities nearby i mean it's not like there's a whole foods around the corner or even a cash and carry there's just really nothing u.s foods no way that's hours away so we had to be super super prepared and the method that i used for getting the meals ready was complicated and i'm pretty proud of that today sitting here on my couch in my hoodie chilling on a monday morning and it's like Wow, you know, to get the stories mixed up by the year like that is disappointing because of what I used to be able to do to get these these events to go off without really any hitches. There's always the right amount of food. It was just a really impressive. I have to give myself some credit. It was pretty cool. So anyway, we get down to this community center and there's no door unlocked for us and we get there first. So after we we do breakfast this morning was starting at 5 30 and then by seven o'clock we're just so tired we want to throw up and so we have to eat to make up for that that's one of the things i learned from deadliest catch on tv if you can't sleep because you're on a really short sleep schedule for work you eat extra and that's how your body sort of compensates for a little while we all know that can't last forever but if you've got to do it for four or five days like we did it's the way to go so we're just cramming down the the leftover scrambled eggs and all the extra meat and even the vegetarians are grabbing the meat because we're just that hungry and that tired so by the time we're done taking our showers cleaning up our tents to sleep in and loading everything up and tearing down our commercial i mean our um our tent kitchen and getting it back into the the we had to have two trucks and i got it set up where I had one for breakfast and one for dinner and the trailers were loaded with just the things for those days and then I had a big long big cooler for each day and they were marked on the top day one breakfast day two dinner whatever it was and they were loaded in order and I would have the things that were for the last breakfast frozen solid with dry ice in the very back of the trailer so they were not touched until that day and that was a pretty impressive setup i was pretty proud of myself coming up with that so it saved us a lot of time and then i would plaster on the inside walls of the trailer on either side what the menu was what to pull where it was and then i had these black um, grower tubs full of all the the dry pantry goods things that didn't need to be refrigerated and of course there's always an issue with um getting everything in the the right places sometimes it just wouldn't all fit in the cooler so then you'd have something loose and stray in a smaller container or in another cooler and it was just ah i could never buy enough coolers i must have had 15 at some point maybe more let's see two for two for each day times five days yeah i had i had a lot of coolers and they have to have separate ones for the vegan crowd um they can't have anything in the same container you know as meat eaters so all of that so by the time we get all this reconfigured and make sure we check for ice and we check to refill propane and we all have to be able to take our turn just 
breathing for a minute, you know, when the light of day hits and drink enough coffee and use the restroom and all the other stuff we had to do. <clears throat> then we also wanted to take a different path than the cyclists. Because when you've got a big moving truck, some of these are one lane mountain roads that are curvy or they're hugging the cliff. Highway 1 is where we were primarily working and 101. So you can imagine that we would take a detour and still get there first because our big vehicles wouldn't share the road with 175 cyclists bobbing and weaving in and out of traffic and whatnot. So we would take a different way to get over Highway 1 down to um, uh, Fort Bragg and Mendocino and this Casper place we talked about was called the Dramamine Highway for a reason. It was so windy and so steep and so pitch dark with these tiny, tiny pine trees on every corner, a lot of five and 10 mile an hour corners. That, that part would last for an hour. And then you come out on this gorgeous, spectacular, stunning coastal highway right hanging over the cliff of the Pacific. It was amazing. But even the drivers would get car sick. So we called it the Dramamine Highway. And it was one of those things where I always wanted to get there the day before if we ever held an event that in that direction because I wanted to be able to recuperate from the drive itself before we had to start catering. So I'd pay for a hotel for everybody, even though this was only two hours from home, just because of the rigorous um, driving aspect of it. And then that doesn't count any of the locals coming at you full steam ahead around a blind corner when you don't know it and they're hugging, they're in your lane, of course, and they're going 30 on a 10 mile an hour corner. I don't know about you, but three times the speed limit is just too much. So that was all part of it. And in a moving truck, we would get one of those 14 foot trucks. So it was easier to organize our stuff and we'd have some um, like a covered enclosed walk-in sort of so that even in bad weather we could at least get out of the weather as much as possible and then we'd park our tent right next to it so there if you did have to come in and out of weather you were at least just limited to one or two hits on the head before so we get down to this community center in casper and it's just beautiful but they've been they've redone the floors they had just waxed all these floors and it was still drying the day that we got there in the middle of a, a rainstorm. And so we tried to set up our tent on the deck in the back thinking, well, if we can't get in, we still have food to do. And by the time we just slept everything in the mud and the rain and we're exhausted and we're cold all the way through, it's like, now we, now we get to deal with this. Oh my God. But at least we weren't going to be in the rain. So everybody was grateful for that. And pretty soon the cyclists are showing up and we can't get in the building and they're expecting us to be cooking in the kitchen. And so finally the director gets on the phone and he's, and she's like, well, you've got to open the door for these people to get in and start catering for us. And they relented. They finally said, okay, okay, but just don't damage the floors. And so we're like, well, of course we don't really need to be anywhere except in the kitchen. So, you know, just let us in please. So we finally get in the building. It puts us a little bit behind and we're not really enjoying that part. But what are you going to do? And that year I had this couple with me and it was probably the second year into the whole thing. And um, they had little kids. And at the time there were little kids still on the ride as well. And so I'm like, yeah, bring your kids. I don't care. I just need some help. So they brought their kids along. And they were beautiful people. I really liked this couple a lot. They were easygoing. They were kind of like young hippies, you know, following fish around. And 
um, the band and just, you know, groupies kind of, and, but they were, they were just so cool. I loved them to pieces. So we get going one day and, and about the third time you turn around, you're just so tired. You can't see straight. Right. And I'm trying to tell this part carefully because I love these people and I understand exactly what the woman was going through because I have a similar backstory. So there was a, a history of, you could tell, child abuse in her background because of the way she freaked out one day. Her daughter, she had two daughters with her. One was a toddler and the other one was in early grade school. And the older one was precocious, always having these amazing conversations with people. I think she might have been maybe seven, something like that. But she was super engaged with the writer. She was hanging out with them and really having a good time. And, you know, it was it was a really beautiful thing to see. And I was really, really strict with my girls when they were little like that. So I could appreciate what the mama was thinking and going through while she's working her little tail off to help us get the food ready. And, um, her daughter's just kind of running around the little one. She had to juggle between taking care of the, the toddler and working. And I wasn't really, um, having a hard time with that because her husband was making up for any kind of distraction that the wife was having. I'm not going to use any names on purpose out of respect for them. And I hope at some point they get to listen to this. So anyway, the older daughter was suddenly just so excited because there was a playground at this um, community hall where we were. And she's off doing her thing. The rain had kind of stopped for a little bit at this point. And somehow a person, one of the, the younger kids, the rider kids, who must have been 25-ish, grabbed her by the arms and was swinging her around in a circle, like, you know, like you do with kids. And the mama saw this and freaked out. She was at her wits end. She had too much to do with the two kids in tow and working the whole, the whole time under rigorous conditions that made, you know, even 20 year olds after the week of the climate ride is over, they'd go sleep for 18 hours straight after this event. And they're just kids with no, no obligations. Right. So you can imagine what it'd been like for a young mom to be going through this experience with children along as well in a campground and traveling every single day to a new one and setting up another kitchen again, 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 and again. So she freaks out and starts screaming at this client, the, the, the rider saying, how dare you touch my kid? I saw you. Ah, and she lost it. Of course, the, the person wasn't doing anything wrong. They were in public. I saw the little girl get swung around. I knew that everything was fine. Cause I, like I said, I'm a mama bear myself. And so I'm always watching if someone's hanging out with a little kid, what are they doing? Are they trying to take them somewhere private? And I'm on top of that. That's just who I am. And so I knew what was going down. The kid was being friendly and the adults around her thought she was charming. And she was, she was such a, an adorable little kid. So when this mama lost it, it was because of a lack of sleep and all this pressure had been mounting. And so we gave the riders so much leeway with their mood swings because they've been riding bicycles. But we often realized later in hindsight that our work was even more grueling because we were the ones who had to get up well before dawn, sleeping in tents also, 
or the back of our car. I finally started sleeping in my vehicle. It was just so much more comfortable with the climate control. But the thing is, when you're taxing your body and your mind like this simultaneously for days on end and having to do the people pleasing and the expectations and the timelines and the crunch time and the all the mental acrobatics between this person's vegan meal has to have this and that, but they're also gluten-free and this one can't have a lot of fat. Oh my God, we're in a campground. We're not in a medical facility with food service. So she lost it and she was so embarrassed that she had created this outburst that she finally just, they got a hotel and she went to the hotel and stayed there for the duration of the ride. And her husband continued on with us. So she kept the kids away from the event from, for the rest of the time. And I was so sad. I felt so bad for her because I know she was mortified. It wasn't her style to be um, really loud like that, but she, she was just out of it and she went into to hyper mama mode. So the next morning, see, she had been in charge of coffee service and she was very good at it. So now her husband's got to pick up all of her slack, not just half of it. She was still contributing quite a bit. And I always made sure she did the, the drink service station because that's easier to manage. And it's not so, um, careful. I mean, it's like you can't burn the food sort of thing. So it was easy to use that for her role um, on the ride and her support was excellent. So anyway, so he had to pick up the slack for that. And the very next morning was that's that uh, early start. So we're out there at 430 in the morning and it's still pouring down rain and we're still exhausted and we still need to get Sorry, I got to get a power cord here and get this charged up. Um, we still need to get the last part of the ride done. And so he's now in charge of coffee service. And I had these big, huge coffee pots that held a bunch at the time. This was before I learned about how to make uh, instant cowboy coffee in a campground that worked so much better. But in the early days, I brought my giant percolator along and um, we would plug that into an RV outlet because they always had electricity and water spigot. And then when we got into this building, I was like, yeah, this is going to be so easy. But what I didn't realize was my crew didn't get up on time. I didn't plan for that part. <laughs> I tell them you got to be up at four 30, ready to work at five, five on the regular days. And then uh, we'd serve at seven, but on the early days, we'd have to get up at three 30 to be able to make it for a five 30 breakfast, even though it's the same steps, it takes longer to get your act together. <laughs> it's still the middle of the night. You just can't see anything. We're wearing these funny little headlamps everywhere. <sighs> so husband is in charge of coffee service. Now that wife is taking care of the kids at the hotel. So we're down a person, half a person. And they also were in charge of bringing, they told me they had a trailer. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just pay them since they're coming on the ride anyway. It'll be really good for them. They'll be able to stay in their own vehicle so they'll be more comfortable with their kids. And then they'll get to get the money for the, the to replace the, the expense I would have had for a moving truck. And I can help this family more with paying them more money. I'll just, you know, reassign my budget for the, the trailer to them. And I thought that'd be great. And they were tickled. So what I didn't know was... I mean, they told me it was nice. They told me everything was great. They told me how big it was. And I'm like, cool. Okay, good. That's what I need. So 
They show up at midnight, the night before the ride, to load this thing up. I'd wanted it there the day before, but that just didn't work out. So lesson learned, don't count on anybody else to provide the vehicle. For the next years, I never did that. So this time, <laughs> they show up with a converted camper shell, one of those old ones from the 70s with the ridges along the horizontal style ridges on the metal, you know. And then there was like a, it belonged on a pickup truck. You couldn't, it wasn't something you could camp in. It was just more like covering up the bed of the truck and level with the cab. So I hope that makes sense. I think you know what I'm talking about. You used to see them a lot like 20 years ago, 30 years ago on these old, old redneck trucks. Well, this one had a pull, like you could open the back with this, it had a glass window along the back part where the tailgate was connected to the tailgate, right? And the hydraulics on it was broken. It, it wouldn't, it, <laughs> one of my team members who was already um, kind of a drama queen, she, poor thing, she went to reach in and get something out of there. And, oh, and it was ugly. I was embarrassed. I had had them drive around the corner with it so that nobody saw it because it was so unprofessional. And at midnight, the night before the ride, it was like, well, shit, I guess that's what we're going to be doing. So you just roll with it and lesson learned, don't ever let that happen again. So this person, this drama queen, uh, reaches in the back and they had a stick holding it open. It was that bad. And the stick fell and the whole thing hit this poor woman on the head, hit her right on the head. And she lays down and she did this all the time, every single week. Her favorite thing to do was to hurt herself. And then she'd lay down on the floor in front of the stove or the walkway or the lane or the car parking spot, whatever main thoroughfare she could get her hands on. She would have a, a drama queen episode. And this one she earned. Oh my gosh, this was so awful. I felt so bad for her. She hit her head. So she's laying outside. It's 4.30 in the morning, pitch black. It's raining. And she's just laying where everybody needs to get their stuff out and they can't walk around her. And granted, to be really honest, I felt so bad for her that time. And then I noticed that there was a pattern every single weekend. So after a while, I started rolling my eyes instead of rushing to her side to help her feel better. <sighs> Another lesson learned. So in the meantime, the guy who owns this trailer situation, this redneck trailer situation, He's trying to figure out how to do the coffee. I don't realize that he doesn't know how to use a big percolator like that. We called it Wally. And um, because I had a neighbor named Wally Perkins when I was a kid. That's how Wally came about. So I, I we're ready. And, and everybody starts showing up. When you say breakfast is at 7, people will show up at, at 6 and say, where's the coffee? And they expect it. And it's like, well we're going to be eating at seven. So it'll be ready at seven. And I quickly learned that the best way to keep the masses out of my hair in the early morning when I didn't have as much patience was to make sure the coffee was ready at six. So we started doing that and he was in charge of getting the coffee going. I just wanted 90 cups ready by six. And that way these people would leave us alone. And then we just keep staggering, bringing out more and more and more. And we, like I said, we had four of those 90 cup Cambros going at one point we had one for decaf one for water and two with regular coffee that we'd cycle through 
one would, you know, we just keep making more and keep adding to it. So the system was pretty good over time. We got that worked out. And um, I'll tell you in a little while how we started doing the instant coffee so much easier. So um, the guy whose name shall not be named decided that since we were so far behind and a, a whole person down, and now another person is laying on the ground because he brought a trailer that didn't have a, a latch that would stay open. The hydraulic thing was shot. So he just shoved a stick in there and, you know, let it land on our head. <clears throat> so now we're really, really in big trouble. So he decides he's going to speed things up by putting hot water in Wally, the percolator. Well, I'm here to tell you, if you've never used one of those big things, you have to have cold water in there or it won't do anything at all. So I didn't know this, of course. I'm busy making the food and getting things loaded up on the buffet and filling in his wife's little gaps and the plan. And and now the other woman is laying on the ground whining like a baby. And she actually had a reason for that time. So I shouldn't have said it like that this time. But you'll see later what I mean. So it's time to eat. And this is the morning when the, the director wanted me to do an oatmeal situation with steel cut oats. And so I had, <laughs> I had somebody in charge of making the steel cut oats. I mean, how hard can it be, right? You get the right amount of water, you get the right amount of oats, you add the right amount of salt, and then you cook it. And we had huge pans, everything was great. And then I was going to have it set up to where it was on steam and then people could come along and I'd scoop out the portion and then they go take all these toppings and put it all over. We had all kinds of beautiful toppings to add to it. And the director thought that would be easier and quicker than doing um, eggs that day for us to have a break because it was one of those early, early mornings again. So <laughs> mind you, I'm thinking, okay, the two hard or the two easy tasks are handled. I've got somebody handling the coffee and I've got somebody handling the oats. So we're in good shape. I'm going to make sure to fill in the gaps for the other stuff that didn't get done now that I'm down two people. And people start to come in and ask for the coffee. And I'm like, um, well, where is it? So I go around the corner and sure enough, this guy is trying to get the coffee out as fast as he can. And mind you, he's a chef. He's, he's a chef from, he used to have a, a grilled cheese tent when he followed this band called Fish, and that's where he met his wife. They were, they fell in love, and it was really cute. So he brings out the the coffee pot itself, and I said, "Well, you know, you could have started it on the table. There's a plug-in right there." He's like, "Oh, okay, cool. I'll I'll do that next time." <laughs> so because he's got to take his sweet time figuring out how to get this hot thing. This has got to go find pot holders and all this is taking several minutes and people are still standing there with their mugs waiting to fill them up and they're grumpy and they got bedhead and they're still just wanting to get their liquid personality on. So hurry up with the coffee, damn it. You know, that kind of a thing and their dirty looks and glares. And I'm thinking to myself, if you guys only knew you wouldn't, you'd be kissing our grits right now, not glaring like where's my coffee an hour early. It's not ready. So we're actually getting close to the real 5:30 start time. And all I can think is, where's my damn coffee? I've got other things I need to be doing besides puppy guarding and babysitting this coffee person. So I go check on the person with the head wound and she's not bleeding, but she's, you know, feeling like she's got a headache. So she's down for the count. 
And I'm worried that she's got a concussion because she's really acting like it. So I don't find out till a few hours later that she barely bumped it at all. <laughs> but of course, I didn't know that at the time because I take people at face value. So the coffee finally is out. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness, that's pressure's off. Crunch time, crunch time, crunch time, right? All this pressure. And so two things happened that morning. The coffee was lukewarm, dirty water. And the oats were raw. So my entire breakfast that morning, all that getting up and all that rigmarole was nothing worked. Everything was shit. Everything was bad. I was so upset. And there's nothing more I personally could have done. And once again, the toxic positivity came around where it was like, I felt responsible. I apologized to the director that I throw their schedule off because the stuff wasn't ready right when it should have been. Coffee wasn't hot enough because the guy who was in charge of the coffee didn't do it right. He didn't do it fast enough and he didn't do it right. So everybody was waiting, waiting, waiting. And they're all standing and starting to mill around. And I am the queen of being ready at three minutes till. I want anything that's supposed to be served hot to be hot. And I want anything that's supposed to be served cold to be cold, crisp to be crisp. Tender to be tender. It's pretty straightforward for me. I'm not just a caterer. I'm actually a chef and I care about every single diner's experience. I want them to sit down with their plate of food and say, wow, this came out of a campground tent. I am impressed. And it didn't happen that day. It was a terrible hard day for us all. And the end of the story for this episode is when you have somebody in your crew on your crew that is um, prone to laying down in the middle of the floor to get attention. Just give them a little bit of attention and then they'll get back to work. Praise them profusely when they're doing anything half right and let them know that they matter because something's missing in their life. Something is wrong and they don't want to be an irritation. They really want your attention and they'll do anything to get it. So I learned that over time that with this particular person who was constantly burning herself, cutting herself, bumping into things, tripping her foot, uh, whatever it was, she would always lay down in the walkway, always lay down right in front of the hot stove while we're cooking, just on the floor. It just was really sad and so self-effacing. And I finally just learned to give her a little bit of extra love and a little bit of extra attention until I couldn't take it anymore and I had to let her go. But that that's another topic for another day. It's funny how you become like family when you're working together under these circumstances. I feel like it's a, just a smidgen along the same lines that it would be the brothers in arms sort of camaraderie kind of thing. You know how it is when you're in the kitchen, it's you against the, the customer, your team against the world, and you want to support each other and you want to learn about each other in, in ways that support each other. Because when you've got crunch time over and over and over in a restaurant, it's taxing. And when you've got one big fat crunch time in catering, it's taxing. And you're spending some major hours in the same space, very close conditions, very uncomfortable conditions. The weather is affecting things, the heat, the kitchen, the hot water, the heavy stuff, the sharp stuff, the stinky stuff, the weird people you get paired up with, how your feet are feeling, how your back and your neck are feeling. Oh my gosh, there's so much to it that you've got to realize that you're kind of a family, a dysfunctional, thrown together family. And that's 
the beauty of being in food service. And I think that's why so many of us just keep on keeping on with it. It's like, we love the the family aspect of it that you, you just don't get that with other kinds of work. You know what I mean? And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And so by the time we're done with this breakfast and we're feeling like crap, we're just feeling so low because we worked really hard and it still didn't turn out the way we wanted. And then the director comes up and says, what happened? And looks you right in the eye and you can tell he's just holding his breath that he's being diplomatic, but he's really frustrated with things not flowing smoothly because he's also a perfectionist and he's one of my best friends after all these years. And it's like trying to disappoint, not disappoint Blake is really important. And he deserves to not be disappointed. He tries really hard. He does beautiful things. He creates amazing experiences and he's charming and he never forgets your name. So he's the last person you want to mess up in front of. <laughs> so I just, sometimes when I look back at these first two years of this motley crew that I would assemble to go do this ride, I can't believe they kept calling me back. The first year, I only did a couple meals for them. And I was a wedding caterer at that point. I had wedding stuff. I was planning on being in buildings. I wasn't really an outside person yet. So I brought a, a 90 cup percolator with a cord, an old fashioned one that you could see at the thrift store. Everywhere you go nowadays, they're all over this really thin aluminum. And I would plug that in to an RV spot, make sure my tent was pitched right over the electrical stick that comes out of the ground on the concrete pad where the RV park usually is. And I would just tell Blake, I'd be like, okay, I need to have one of these so I can center my kitchen on that. And then the concrete is, it's just better. And so he's like, okay, cool. I get it. And sometimes they would just have gravel and that's still fine. So that was how it went. And I remember the first year, it's just having a bumbly mess of, the, of things. One of the people that was on my staff was a 70 year old woman with health problems. She'd been a chef all her life and she was really proud of her grit and her work ethic. She was known as the Backwoods Gourmet and her two grandkids came along as well. And so, and then her younger, she had a husband who was my age. So, you know, he was in his forties and they came along. So basically I had a whole family helping me. And then my daughter was with us as well. And we worked really well together. We all loved each other like family, but Andy, old Andy, she just couldn't get around anymore. So whatever project I gave her, she'd have to be sitting down and she wanted to treat it more like a quilting bee and take her sweet time because she'd earned the right to just chill, right? And so that first year was so hard. And the raccoons got in our coolers, even though we closed them up tight, put a rock on top. They still would filter through our stuff during the night. And we just had this ragtag team. And I remember the directors getting hold of me after the event saying, we were a little bit worried the first day, but we kept seeing that you were really trying to get it figured out and we really want to work with you. So if you can make sure that you're a little ahead of the game next year, now that you know what's going on, let's just plan on doing this again next year. And I was so grateful. They could see my enthusiasm and my effort and my thought process and my team's process. And they really thought that we were awesome, even though, some of the French toast was burned because we didn't have headlamps that first year. And we didn't think about the things that we would need. And I hadn't been able to develop the really cool coffee situation that we used for years after that. The first year was just insane trying to 
get a, a folding table up close enough to this electrical outlet that is right by the water spigot and then have this giant pot of coffee cooking or percolating at 4.30 in the morning when it's freezing cold on the coast. I mean, everything is wet just from the cold ocean right there. And it's not like a Southern California beach in that region. So I don't know even know how old Wally could percolate. I don't know how it happened, but we finally got things figured out. And I'm so grateful they gave us another chance because as the years went by, we became a fine-tuned machine and we did a beautiful job of always being ready on time, always serving these intricate, um, elaborate planning meals that would make sure the vegans felt satisfied. And one of the rules was that <laughs> everything had to look like everything else. So for example, the vegan meal needed to look like we needed to make scrambled eggs for them, but vegan. And we needed to make, um, when we had the taco day, there had to be a filling that looked like chicken. And it was just kind of a strange thing because it's like being part of the family. You don't want anybody to feel like they're different. And so there was a lot of strategy that went along. And I'm so grateful that we went through this challenge every year. And at the end of each ride, we would all be so dirty dog tired that we'd barely be able to get ourselves home. And we'd all say, oh my God, I'm never doing this again. I don't know how I'm going to tell them, but we're out. We're not going to do it again. And then about a month later, my mind would start going like, I can't wait for the next climate ride. We're going to do this different. We're going to do that different. And I would get a hold of Blake and we'd email back and forth about how we're going to improve the next time. And what do you think about this? And can we try that? And it was just a fantastic collaboration. I miss them so much. In fact, I'm going to reach out today and just check in and make sure they're all doing well. This pandemic really um, took away a lot of my uh, most treasured relationships. We lost track of each other and, and I'm bummed about that. When you lose your, your place in life and you start to reinvent yourself or go through a health crisis like I did and just start all over again, it's like a uh, divorce kind of, or you just, you don't have your loved ones around anymore. And it's really sad. And I really hope that anybody's listening who took a break from food service thinking they were never going to go back into it, that you ask yourself why and what parts were difficult because I have some exciting news. While I was recording a few weeks back, I was talking about prep day being my favorite day of the week. And I'm not sure if you remember that or not, but I do. And, um, I loved it because all the planning I had done in advance that I loved, I love strategizing about the menu and making it amazing and the quantities and all that. And I just love getting within 10% of the right amount of food. So there's no waste, but there's plenty for everybody to have seconds who wants it. And there's just a real art to that. And I loved it. But my favorite part was getting to be in the kitchen and creating the food without a deadline because prep day was all about just the creation. And the people that I worked with, of course, my staff or my family, and I love them so much. So prep day was my favorite. We crank up the music. You get to wear regular clothes. It, your feet are more comfortable. You can just, people get to do what they're good at. They don't have to do everything. And then you just go till you're done and then you're done. And that's what I love about prep day. It was my favorite day of the week. And now I'm interviewing with a group called Cook Unity and they feature chefs who want to be able to get their meals out to more people. And this is something that a lot of people would ask me about. A lot of my wedding clients wanted me to be their personal chef afterwards. And 
a lot of people from out of the area were like, man, I wish you lived nearby. When, when are you going to open a restaurant? It was a regular refrain. And I would always say, oh, no, 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 I don't ever want a restaurant that expensive, a brick and mortar, uh-uh, and trying to keep the staff going, no, thank you, and having to crunch time for every single meal, uh-uh, I, I like what I got going on, thank you very much. And so I would always refuse, even though I had a house that had been a restaurant before, that's where my commercial kitchen was, and I lived in it, it was beautiful. And so this community situation has celebrity chefs. It started in New York a few years ago and they've been branching out. Now they're on the West coast. I currently live in Portland and I'm headed to Portugal in a couple of years, I think. And, um, lo and behold, they're now in Seattle and I want to go be one of those chefs. And right now I'm getting ready to go do a tasting and a walkthrough in a couple of weeks. And if I like it, and if they like me, then I'm going to be doing meals for anybody who wants to order them. And they'll be delivered the same day. They're made fresh. It's the gourmet food that I'm famous for. It's the nutritional food that I'm famous for. And it's the yummy food that I'm famous for. And I'm really so excited because, drum roll please. It's prep day. It's perpetual prep day. They handle the ordering of the food. They've got the commissary kitchen with all the tools and all the equipment and all the tables. And I have a designated space. I just go in by myself or I bring in my team, depending on how big the orders get. And I prepare, <laughs> the, they bring in the groceries. I don't even have to carry boxes of groceries from my car to the house. <laughs> and they handle the marketing, they handle the ordering, they already have the clients. Of course, when you get, when you hear this, you get to be the new clients signing up too. And I'll tell you more as it goes along. And then I get paid per dish, part of the amount that they charge. And it's so affordable. I couldn't believe it. The meals are anywhere from 10 to 13 or $14 a person. There are a couple of like um, culinary collection upgrades that you could do. Like, I think there's Right now, one of the chefs on there has something with lobster in it. I think you pay an extra $6.99 for that dinner. But it's really affordable. I'm in shock at the pricing. And it's already successful. So I'm super excited to have a perpetual prep day chef career. I just can't get over how cool this is. And one of my girlfriends, Rita Egidio, if you're listening, Rita, hello. She's in Mexico right now. And she's like, you manifested this. We were just talking about how you love prep day so much on your podcast. And here it is, perpetual prep day. You made this happen. And I'm like, huh, I didn't even try. <laughs> so I'm here to tell you that sometimes things don't seem like they're going to work out the way you want. And if you just stop struggling, they do. They come up in the most bizarre ways. And so unless I blow the tasting session, which not to be a braggart because that's not my nature, but I love doing tasting sessions for people. I love feeding them. And so my enthusiasm comes through the food and all I can think is, hmm, what should I make? Because I don't know if they're going to be gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian, or want more meat. So that's the biggest worry I've got is which one of my yummy dishes do I want to serve this cook unity crew that will be um, next week. I'm so excited. I'll report back when I get done and how it went. And let you know how to sign up if you haven't already. They're all over the place. I think they're only missing in three or four states. The Dakotas and Montana 
are out of their service area right now, but I think everywhere else is within their service area and they're expanding further and further. So that's just wonderful. I'm really, really pleased and very excited. Perpetual prep day. Yes.